welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show was presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Millie Bombush, and we're talking about wills or trust. What is the best estate planning document for you? And now it's time to introduce our guests. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Melissa Walker, a partner with Salo and Walker, and attorney Lorraine DeSalvo, a partner with Morgan and DeSalvo. Melissa, let's start with you. Can you give us a quick overview of who you are and tell us a little bit about your practice? Thank you for having me this morning. Uh, my name is Melissa Walker. Uh, I've been practicing in Georgia for oh, over 25 years. Uh, all I've ever done is uh, estate planning, wills, trusts, probate, estate and trust administration. I have one law partner, and we've been practicing together uh, since I've been in Georgia, 26 years this year. And we um, have a wide range of uh, clients, uh, individuals mainly, and I really enjoy what I do. What about you, Lorraine? Tell us about your practice. Well, I actually went to law school in the first place because I wanted to be a tax lawyer. And so as part of that, I ended up in estate planning because it does involve taxes. Even though the estate tax isn't what it used to be, it's still a lot of tax work involved. I've been doing this for 19 years now. Uh, the Do whole you still time. want to be a tax lawyer? Yes. Although I don't really necessarily want to file estate tax returns anymore with this consistent basis reporting, but that's a whole different topic. <laughs> um, yeah, I've practiced with Richard Morgan. He originally hired me out of Emory. I became a partner in 2005. It, the, it's, I'm like Melissa. The whole practice, my entire career has been devoted to estate planning and probate tax planning, trust and estate administration. So, And I do love it. I work with great clients. Good. Well, let's delve right into our topic. Um, we're talking about wills and trusts. What is the best estate planning document for you? Um, can you tell us just at the outset, what's the difference between a will and a trust? Well, a will, as I usually explain to clients, is a document that you execute today, but that doesn't actually do anything until you've passed on. So it's basically something that says, this is what I want to have happen to my stuff when I die. A trust, on the other hand, once you've signed it, it actually exists. It can do things immediately. And then it can also contain provisions that say, when I pass away, here's what happens to my stuff. Now, when you use a will sometimes, and I see this all the time, it identifies property, but sometimes the property doesn't exist. What's, all, what's up with that? You mean in terms of? The will will say, I'm going to give my house to my wife, but there is no house. Or it says, I give my diamond ring to my favorite daughter. And one, there's no daughter or there's no diamond ring. You know, what happens when that happens? Right. I, I find a lot of clients, when they're in the process of doing their estate planning, will uh, focus on exactly what they own today. And I really try to encourage people to think more globally and in general terms. With regard to a will, one of the things I always remind people of is that the will is going to be of public record, meaning it'll be filed with the probate court once, they've, once they're deceased, and that we usually don't want to include too much personal information, uh, whether it's about assets, uh, whether it's about individuals. Um, I've seen lots of wills prepared by attorneys that include individuals' social security numbers, which actually now I believe is against the law to have that recorded um, publicly. 
we just want to think in general. That way, the will remains uh, flexible, uh, remains relevant and current. And so we just want to think in general who should benefit from assets. It doesn't mean you can't include specific gifts of a certain piece of property or jewelry or other things like that. But let's not get uh, too much down in the weeds uh, with regard to what we're going to be talking about and keep it general. Who's gonna, who, are, who are the beneficiaries? How should they take the property? And who should be in charge of making decisions? Those are the big issues. Yeah. One thing that we like to do in a will where the, the client is focused on specific assets, especially with tangible personal property items like the diamond ring, include language in the will stating, if this particular asset can't be found after my death, this bequest just becomes ineffective. I mean, you, you, if you, if you are got, if you have a client that wants to address really specific assets like that, you need to address the possibility that it isn't going to be there. I, I typically think of a will as like a quit claim deed. It tells you this is what I'm going to do if I own it when I die. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yep, I think that's right. I, I worked some time uh, at one point. This was years ago with someone whose uh, grandfather had left a will saying that he owned all of Stone Mountain and that he bequeathed it to his family members. And so I did a little research. This was from a friend of a friend and uh, uh, did a little research and determined that the grandfather did not own Stone Mountain. And so therefore, the family was not going to be receiving this this large inheritance that they had thought. But uh, but I live in an old house and my and the and the granite from my house is actually quarried at Stone Mountain. So you own a piece of Stone Mountain. Not the whole thing. (laughs) Leslie, you earlier brought up a a mention of privacy and a will is a public document. You mentioned some wills include social security numbers. Just a very specific question. What happens if there is a will with a social security number in it? Is that filed as a public document or is that number redacted? What what happens? Well, my general practice is, I mean, here's another, maybe a, a good example. Obviously, when, when a will is filed with the probate court when someone is deceased, I don't touch it. I don't do anything to it because that is, uh, I feel like it's, it's illegal for one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a more common place that that comes up is uh, when I need to, uh, when I'm working on the administration of an estate, and for some reason, we might need to put someone's death certificate in the public record. For example, husband and wife owned their home as joint tenants with right of survivorship. And we're going to record an affidavit of title to show that, for example, one spouse has now died and title is vested in the surviving spouse. And typically, you'll do that by recording a certified copy of the death certificate. And that does have the decedent's social security number on it, uh, as well as just about any other kind of information you might need to commit credit fraud on someone's estate, mother's maiden name, date of birth, you know, et cetera. And what I usually do is uh, take a little piece of tape and cover up the social security number and send it off to be recorded because they'll make a photocopy or a digital image of it. And then it won't show up in the in the deed record. With, with regard to the will, if I really had a concern about a social security number, then I probably would um, consider asking the court to mm-hmm. seal the file or uh, make some other arrangement so that outsiders wouldn't have the opportunity to get that information. And privacy is a big issue, um, a big reason for maybe using a trust as an estate planning vehicle instead of a will. Is that right? Yes, yes. Actually, I had a question posed to me the other day. Can I leave assets to my friends instead of to my family and not have my friends know what I'm doing? Of course, the answer is yes, you can write whatever documents you like. Um, but also you may want to consider the additional step in that case of using a revocable trust instead of just a will. 
specifically to prevent your family from getting all of the details about what you did, because you may have to contact the family members in order to get a will probated. If you've got a fully funded revocable trust, you may be able to avoid that step entirely. So when you pass away, a trust is not a document that's filed with the court and that never becomes public record. Right. And who know who, if you've got a trust versus a will, who figures out what you should do when you die? It's a trustee instead of an executor. Or if you didn't fully fund the trust, it may be a trustee and an executor. I, I have found that a lot of times when people are using trust, that the first trustee is yourself. And sometimes the other trustee who will kind of take over when you die has no clue. <laughs> is, is that a common problem? Yes. And one of the steps that, that we encourage our clients to take is to put together what we refer to as a letter of instructions that literally spells out, here's where these accounts are. Here's where I have accounts set up for credit, for banking, for here's my insurance policy numbers. Here's my insurance agent. Here's my financial advisor and put all of that stuff somewhere where it can be found. And then at a minimum, make sure that the person who may be stepping into your shoes as your trustee or as your executor even knows where to find that. You were talking about wills being filed when somebody dies. I've heard that a lot of people file their wills in advance. Can you do that? Well, there is a provision where you can store your will with the probate court. And I will just say as a practical matter, although that's part of the law, the probate courts and judges hate that because they don't want to keep up with all these documents. Um, And then, of course, people frequently change their will many times during their Mm -hmm. lifetime. Uh, So whatever happened to be sent to the court may not be their actual last will and testament, and it can be more bothersome to to find that. And I actually encourage people not to distribute lots of copies of their documents uh, during their lifetime, but rather tell maybe their backup executor, here's where I'm keeping everything. And that way, if you make a change, you don't have to go gather up all the old documents and then people see what you did first and then how you changed it, which sometimes can lead to people being upset or angry. Are are old wills? So I've got a will that I filed, you know, two years ago. Is that public now? No. Only after I die. That's right. And and let me ask a follow-up question because I'm seeing this all the time. The Georgia statute says you must file original wills. Does that mean if I've got a new will that I've got to also file my old original will? Or does that just mean I have to file the new will? In my experience, the courts only want you to file the most recent. They don't want the prior wills because in general terms, a will typically would, by its terms, revoke any other prior wills. And so those are not considered valid. But if someone passes away and the family cannot find the original will, it is possible to file and probate a copy of the will, correct? Sometimes. It's going to be up to the court and you're going to have to provide evidence to overcome the presumption that the will was revoked. Mm -hmm. And that's why you can't find it. In other words, that the deceased person deliberately tore it up. Um, In a lot of those situations where I've had that come up, we've actually just gone with the assumption and done an intestacy because in many of those cases, the will said the same thing that was going to happen under the state law or at least close enough to it. and Everyone was willing to cooperate. So you you mentioned, uh, Lorraine, when we were talking about trusts, you said two things that kind of highlighted to me. First, you said you used the word revocable. And the second thing you said was if the assets were transferred to the trust. So why don't we take each of those one by one? What is the, the difference between revocable and anything else, although I assume it's irrevocable, but 
why would you be using a revocable trust in lieu of a will rather than something else? Because you can change a revocable trust. An irrevocable trust generally is a lot more difficult to change, and generally the person who created it isn't the one who has the ability to make modifications, um, except to an extremely limited extent. A revocable trust is usually intended to be something that you can modify as time goes on. An irrevocable trust is typically a tax planning move. It, it's not really in, usually intended to be the primary source of your distribution instructions. So, so you would think about the revocable trust as a fluid or flexible document to use for your lifetime and for when you die. And you'd think as an irrevocable trust as things you do on a one-time basis to achieve something, whether it be a transfer or a tax advantage or something like that? Yes, pretty much. I mean, you can potentially engage in multiple transactions with an irrevocable trust once it's established, but creating the trust is typically a one-time event. And in your experience, um, Melissa and Lorraine, do most people who create irrevocable trust, do they then put all of their assets, I'm sorry, revocable trust, most, do they put all of their assets in the revocable trust? Or does it hold maybe your primary assets, your, your home or your investment account? And then there are still other assets, your car, your checking account that are outside the trust? Uh, yes, I would say that in general, uh, when I'm working with people who created revocable trusts, um, let's say in another jurisdiction, they used to live in, you know, fill in the blank, Florida, New York, Illinois, and they come to Georgia and they need somebody to look over their documents and see what needs to happen. I find many people signed revocable trusts, yet they never transferred any assets to them, or maybe they did, and then they changed brokers, or they sold one house and bought another, and the new house did not get into the trust. And so part of my process of review is to say, we need to look at all of your assets and make a case-by-case -case determination what ought to be in the trust and what should not, because you're not getting your money's worth out of the trust unless it's mostly funded. So that's a very important process. Uh, and I think that's something that if someone is considering a revocable trust, a question they would ask the attorney they're going to work with, will you help me get this done? Because if you just send your client off into the night with their revocable trust agreement and you don't help them with the funding, I would say in about 99% of the cases, it is just not going to happen because people, they don't know really what to do. They don't know the questions to ask. So that's a, that's a critical step, especially if someone is doing the revocable trust for incapacity management, meaning they're worried that they're going to become disabled. So somebody who's, you know, 80, 90 years old may be sharp as a tack today, but as we get older, we, our health becomes more fragile, and so we want to plan for management. And if the trust is not funded, then it could be very difficult to carry out that goal. We're listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Millie Bombush and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaswitz Frankel. We're talking today with Lorraine DeSalvo and Melissa Walker about wills versus trust. What's the best estate planning document for you? Melissa, I want to pick up on one thing you just said. We were You were talking about revocable trust, and you said they could be used for incapacity. What does that mean? Well, what that means is, ideally, everyone will uh, have uh, the ability to make their own decisions and manage their own assets uh, until the day they die. But in practice, that doesn't happen. And it gets back to what are the reasons why someone would decide to create a revocable trust or use a revocable trust instead of a will? Because it's not a it's not a one size fits all solution. 
Uh, in some states, probate is a big problem, meaning it's very time consuming, it's expensive. Uh, there's a lot of uh, court supervision. There may be mandatory attorney's fees. Uh, we don't have any of that in Georgia. And in the standard case, probate in Georgia is very easy. Say that again, because that is something no one believes in Georgia. So, <laughs> so, so say again whether probate is easy or hard or expensive or not in Georgia. Well, I think probate is very easy in Georgia. And I think what a lot of people are confusing is, on the one hand, the legal probate process. And on the other hand, all of the things that need to be done when a person with assets passes away. And whether you have a will or a trust, there is a certain amount of pain and hassle and inconvenience that you will have to go through to wrap up that person's affairs. Income tax filings, changing title to assets, hunting things down, dealing with creditors and claims, that is all going to have to be done whether you have a will or a trust. But in terms of the legal proceeding, Probate in Georgia is, at its best, a fill-in-the-blank form that you take and the family has all signed off and you take the original will and you go see the clerk. There's no reading of the will. There's no hearing before the judge. It takes about 40 minutes. And in some counties, you walk out, the executor walks out with their letters testamentary, their proof of their authority to act, and you never have to go back to court again. Now, if you don't have a will, you don't have a, a, a will with all of the Georgia powers, yes, probate can be a little less convenient, but still we have some, we have some tools in our toolbox to address that situation. And I do want to mention, you know, we have 159 counties in Georgia, which mean we have 159 probate courts. Welcome to Georgia. These courts, contrary to what most people believe, are the most user-friendly mm-hmm. I've ever seen, that people, the clerks are really out there Absolutely. to help you. Well, and plus the standard forms, which started probably maybe 30, 40 years ago Mm -hmm. with um, the judges in Fulton and DeKalb counties creating standard forms that lay persons could use without the help of an attorney for very basic certain things in the probate courts. And I think that is uh, that's fantastic. I think there are some states that would push against that because they view probate maybe as the lawyer's full employment act. But we don't have that here Mm -hmm. in Georgia. So. Uh, I think that's a great thing. Now, that being said, I think there would be many cases where people would uh, would see the the um, usefulness of an attorney to advise them in the probate, um, or they they should have an attorney, even if they don't recognize that. Can I touch on one thing that, that Craig kind of emphasized? And that was the, or actually Melissa, I think, first mentioned it, the standard case, where the family's getting along, everybody's going to be reasonably happy about the plan. There are certain clients for whom I really strongly recommend that they not rely just on a will, because in those cases, the probate process is not likely to be easy. Um, those are the ones where either they're disinheriting somebody who would be an heir, like they've got a child that they are cutting out, or just even if it's just maybe they're locking up that child's share um, in a trust that the child can't control because of the, you know self-destruction problems. Um, the other situation is where the client, it goes back to the the person I mentioned who asked me the question about, can I leave my assets to my friends instead of to my family? Sure, you can. Um, but we're going to have to contact your family and get them to consent to your will going into probate, if or at least give them notice that it's going and give them a chance to object if you rely solely on a will. In those cases, it can be difficult. And the other situation is is one of the sadder ones. It's the one of the ones where the family 
itself is either very distant or is estranged. And there's I've seen cases where people literally have not had contact with certain relatives in decades. And we don't know where they are. And in those cases, in, in one of those cases, we actually had to get a genealogy report just to prove that there were no more heirs um, that needed to be contacted or at least notified by publication. So those situations, maybe you want to try to avoid probate. But in general terms, yes, I agree with Melissa. Georgia is probably the easiest state to probate that I know of. I mean, by far. Are there cases where you need um, sort of a hybrid? You need both. You need a trust and a will. Melissa, you mentioned the irrevocable trust. There are assets that should go into it, but maybe there are assets that don't go into it. So for those assets, do you need a will? And how does that work? Yes. If, if, I'm, both. if I'm preparing a revocable trust for somebody, there are two other documents that we always need to have in conjunction with that to control property. One would be a will so that in that case where there is an asset that either we didn't know about or was acquired after the fact uh, or for some reason did not make it into the trust. For example, someone um, is a beneficiary of an estate and before they receive the inheritance and are able to put it in their trust, they die. And so as a matter, as a matter of law, it would be payable to their estate. Uh, then we need that will that would direct any of those after acquired assets into the trust. And then we also always need... Just for reference, that's called a pour-over will? Yeah, pour-over will. That's right. Yeah, it's, it would be a very, very simple document at that point because it would not really include any other dispositive provisions. It would direct all of those after-acquired assets to the trust, and it would name an executor and give the executor powers to act, and that would be that would be about it. And then even though when I'm recommending a revocable trust for incapacity management, I always want people to also sign a power of attorney. And a power of attorney is kind of the frontline document for many people to provide for incapacity management. I get hit by a bus. Who has the power to pay my bills, file my tax returns, do other things for me? Um, I always want that in addition to a revocable trust because sometimes there may be something that's not squarely within the authority of my trustee to do something, and the power of attorney is belt and suspenders. Um, but if I'm really concerned about incapacity, I don't want to rely just on a power of attorney because uh, there's no we don't have a law in the state that says anybody has to honor it. And the big banks and the big brokerages in general are the ones who decide they're not going to take it. And if we have someone who has a real incapacity issue, then it puts us between a rock and a hard place. Um, but it can still be useful in the right situation. And in a real incapacity issue, that's when you go ahead and maybe look for guardianship or a conservatorship as well as a, having a trustee. Well, that a guardianship would be a last resort. I don't want to get into that if we don't have to because of the bonding requirement, the court report, the court approval. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very expensive and time-consuming. Um, so we want to do everything we can to avoid that situation. I'm going to give some weird advice because I've seen this so many times. Dealing with banks and brokerage companies <laughs> in, in Georgia, I have found if you have a general power of attorney, if the, if the person knows this is their primary bank or their primary broker, I recommend going in every two to five years and signing their form in addition. Absolutely. And just having it on 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 uh, a file with a specific reference to the other general power. Yeah. So you they know you're using their form and at least your primary banks know. Yeah. We yeah. tell our clients exactly that. Melissa, you were mentioning um, about that you find that people don't, in fact, often transfer the assets. Now, Millie and I see from the litigation side 
that almost every case we have that has a revocable trust at issue wasn't funded properly. And you say that clients don't do that. My question really is, are clients really asking you and are they willing to 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 invest the cost that it might be to have a lawyer help them? Absolutely. Well, the people that I'm working with, uh, they, they uh, uh, it's really part of my overall proposal. When somebody comes to me with their existing situation or their existing documents, and let's say that a revocable trust is part of the plan that I'm recommending, then I build in to my estimate, which I'm I, I, I'm happy to give people an estimate bef- and they can decide to go forward or not. And uh, I build into the estimate the amount of time it's going to take to fund the trust. So, for example, I have um, some clients I'm working with now where they have uh, several real properties. They've got their home here in Atlanta. They've got a beach house in Georgia, and I can prepare the deeds to both of those. They have vacation property in another state. And so I said, we're going to have to hire a lawyer in that other state to prepare the paperwork there. And um, I'll get their estimate, but that's in addition to what I'm going to say. And then in addition to their brokerage accounts, they also had a lot of private investments, partnership interests, and so forth, where I had to communicate with the, um, uh, which can be difficult to get information out of these people. Um, uh, How do you, do you have a form assignment? If you don't, will you take mine? You know, what's required? And to button all those up, because if we, it's much easier to do it now while my clients have the ability to sign than to try to do it later. Do you ever um, sort of give your clients instructions about how to do it and let them go? Do they want to just be left or do they generally want your help in retitling all assets? Uh, I find it is that there are some people who like who like to do that kind of thing. I would say many of the people I work with are happy to have me take care of it because they just that they're unsure that they know the questions to ask. But I find that the people that I work with on the other side, the brokers and different people, um, are usually pretty helpful. They're experienced at that kind of thing. They have their forms. I'm just kind of quarterbacking it and making sure it gets done. Is that your approach as well, Lorraine? We provide all of our clients with specific written instructions, whether they're doing a will or a revocable trust, stating this is how you need to set up your beneficiary designations and this is how you need to title your assets in order to make sure that the plan that we're putting in place for you works correctly when the time comes. If the clients would like our help, we do offer to help with beneficiary designations, deeds, and all of those sorts of things as needed. Um, some of our, cl- A lot of our clients come in working with other financial advisors, and in many of those cases, we can just help their financial advisor help them do things like the beneficiary designations and retitling accounts. We can prepare deeds if it's in Georgia. At, like Melissa, I don't do out-of-state deeds, but we'll help them find somebody who can do one if we need to. But I, I, I always make sure that whoever the client is and whether they're do it yourself or not, that they have those written instructions. Do this, 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 and this. We intend for it to be like a checklist. If you make a plan for them, you want the plan to work out. Oh, yes. I've seen too many cases where assets were titled incorrectly and beneficiary designations were inconsistent with the plan and assets went every which way except where they were supposed to go. And That's why we're hired. Sometimes, <laughs> and sometimes you sometimes you can't clean some of that stuff up. I mean, we we had an estate where assets were supposed to have gone into a trust for the surviving spouse's benefit, and because asset because of joint ownerships and POD designations and other beneficiary designations, most of the assets ended up going to the kids directly, and we were able to get them to disclaim some. But they went. Some of them would could be disclaimed and go into the trust. Some of them to be disclaimed would have gone to the children to the grandchildren it it just 
you know, we, we would end up with the kids making taxable gifts if we had done, cleaned up all of it. Fortunately, the spouse had enough assets of his own to be able to make it with some of the assets just going to the kids. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Millie Bombush and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking with Lorraine DeSalvo and Melissa Walker about wills versus trusts. What is the best estate planning document for you? We've been um, talking about failure to fund the trust properly and title, what are entitled assets in the name of the trust? What are some of the other problems that you see with revocable trusts or wills? Well, some of the biggest problems that I've seen, at least with wills, is honestly either software wills or sometimes wills prepared by other lawyers who didn't really know what they were doing. When, not, it, excuse me, when you say software mil- wills, you mean wills that people get off the internet? Like LegalZoom, Willmaker, um, other sources, yes, exactly. A lot of the times those don't have the things that we would want them to have in them in order to do things like correctly waive bond inventory and reports to the court and in order to give the broadest possible powers to the exec- to the executor. A lot of the times they're not executed correctly, so they're not valid at all. If they are executed correctly, they often don't have a self-proving affidavit, which means we've got to track down a witness and get them to fill out an affidavit to get the will offered for probate. Or sometimes we have to do two disinterested party affidavits. Um, that's One thing I have common. found on a lot of form wills is filling the form out wrong. Yes. So you think you're giving it to one person, but you're actually giving it to another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or they just leave out an entire chunk of the estate. <laughs> it's for, provide for these assets and, and, and not and, the rest of it. And, and talking about forms, Melissa, you were talking about clients are, as part of your plan, using you to transfer the assets. But when I see a lot of people, even with large estates, I see a great discomfort in willing to pay for that. And And how do you get them to be willing to pay and not rely on forms that might not do the trick? I guess I've just been lucky that way. <laughs> I can't. I don't have any advice for anybody on that. I think I'd just like to pick up on something uh, that Lorraine had said earlier, which is uh, the problem, whether you have a will or a trust, yet people have not taken into consideration the effect of how property is titled. If they own something as joint tenants with right of survivorship, that is going directly to the other surviving tenant, not under a will. If they have made something pay on death or transfer on death, again, it's not going under a will. Um, one of the, you know, depending on the the age of the of the of the clients, one of the biggest problems I've seen is uh, people naming their minor children as direct beneficiaries on life insurance or retirement because they think that's going to work out great, and actually, it doesn't work out great at all. Uh, I'm working on a case right now where. Um, uh, a man um, died in an accident where he did not have a will at all. And as it turns out, half of his, his estate is passing to his infant child. And so we were having to do some scrambling after the fact. Now, luckily, Georgia law allows us to petition the court to create a trust for this child, which had the man lived, he would have certainly hopefully done a will and created a trust. The, the disadvantage is that the law says in this case, the trust has to be revocable by the child after age 18. So I have two sons, you know, I, I wouldn't want them to have the power to revoke a trust with substantial assets in it at age 18 because they might make a, a poor decision. Um, 
So it's never as good as as planning ahead of time and then making sure that things are set up uh, to pass the way that you intend. So that's part of the process is not just what you own, but how is it titled and where do you want it to go? And is it going to happen the way that you've done it? And I want to really emphasize that when people, particularly as they age on a 401k account or other qualified retirement account, there are certain rules. And as you age, your assets change in character. You have a house that you may sell and your primary assets may be in a 401k or an IRA or an insurance policy, or even when you sell a major asset in a bank account and lots of people put joint tenants because they want somebody else on there. So that changes everything. And I I just want to mention, if you want somebody on another account to help you write it, do what's called a POA account, a power of attorney account that allows them to write checks but doesn't give them the money in the end. And that's the source of a lot of disputes that we see as well. You know, parents are aging. They put one child on the accounts to help them. And it turns out the child is on there with the right of survivorship. And next thing you know, there's a little fuss with the rest of the siblings because that child wants to take everything in the account and legally could. Mm-hmm. Melissa, you had mentioned, and I thought it was kind of interesting, your 18-year-old sons that are now over 18, by the way, I trust them. But even if you do and they're all responsible, one of the great advantages of a revocable trust that we, I didn't hear us talk about, and I want to hear a little bit, is that it can stay in trust after you die. And there are some advantages sometimes, particularly for minors or for even for spouses that even or, or, or anyone else that rather than having the property go outright to somebody at death, instead it stays in the trust. So tell us why that would be important or not. Okay, well, I think the first thing I should say is that you could accomplish that kind of planning in a will or a trust. What I'm about to say doesn't have to only be done in a revocable trust, but it could be done in a will also. But what you're talking about really hits exactly on something that has been something of a sea change in my outlook on how assets should be managed, in particular for children. Um, And, you know, your standard will that I've written many, many of these and seen many of them says that uh, if both parents are deceased, assets go in trust for the children. And when the children get to be one age, let's say 30, they can draw out or they get half of their share outright. And when they get to be a second age, like 35, they get everything outright. And I would say that except in a very modest situations, what I'm recommending to all of my clients now is uh, if you're willing to give it to your children outright, leave it in trust for them where they can be their own trustee. They can have the authority to pull it out, but they can leave it in trust and they can have a power to direct what happens to it by their own will so they can control it without taking it out of the trust. And the main benefit of this is to ensure that this inherited property maintains its character as separate property. So if a child gets married and then later gets divorced, they will have not accidentally commingled that inheritance with their marital property, which will make it subject to division upon divorce. And if they get it outright in their individual name, it is just super easy to get somebody else's name on that account where the inherited money is without any discussion about the legal implications of that change or uh, what it means and what would happen if there were a divorce or something else. And uh, having it in trust means that there's a governor on that happening. You can't just put somebody else's name on a trust account and it's cover so that, you know, the children can say to their spouses or partners, 
you know, I'm really sorry. Mom and dad left it in trust for me. And that's why I can't put your name on it, honey. Not the lawyer said, if I put it in joint names and we got divorced, you would get half of it. And I don't want that to happen. They don't want to have that conversation. So Mm. this way it gets, you know, I'm like, I'm happy to be the bad guy. You know, mom said I had to be home at midnight. So that's why I have to leave the party now. Put it on me. I'm totally happy for that. And that really resonates with my clients because that's their number one concern for their adult children is Mm -hmm. because they've seen their friends, children going through divorce. Maybe they've had to divorce in their own family and they want to protect their children's inheritance. Yeah. Is there, when we're dealing with trust, sometimes one of the advantages of a trust, particularly with young people, is that it's not available to creditors in case something bad happens in their life or a spouse or whatever on a joint liability. If you choose what you just said to, to name yourself as the trustee or continue it, do you still have the protections against creditors or does that go away? I would say those are two different animals. If you want a trust that is completely protected from the beneficiary's creditors, then you would write it one way. If you're using a trust really to be more of a holding pen and a protection against accidental commingling, which is what I just mentioned, then that's a different kind of trust. So I think you have to identify your goals at the outset. And I would say most of my clients, they'd be willing to let the children have it outright after a certain age. You know, most of my clients are coming in and saying, you know, the kids are all over 30, they're responsible, they're, you know, um, employed, they're doing well. So we're not worried about creditor protection. And in most cases, you know, the tool to protect against uh, creditors, like judgment creditors, car accident, that kind of thing, is to be adequately insured. um, Mm -hmm. Because many people would not want to have their inheritance controlled by somebody else. Yeah, we do. And in, in our practice, we do have a lot of entrepreneurial clients that have started businesses and built them. And that's where most of the wealth comes from. In a lot of those cases, a lot of them would like their children to also be entrepreneurial. And we, what we do find is we we try to structure a lot of our trusts, the long term trusts, not only to provide divorce protection for the kids, but also to allow them the ability to beef up the creditor protection aspects of their trust. So even if at some point the child becomes his or her own trustee, we usually set it up when you have what's called a health education maintenance and support standard at that point. Um, It does weaken the creditor protection. But if we've set it up properly and you allow an independent trustee to come in if the child resigns and the independent trustee has a much less uh, specific standard and basically becomes at the trustee's discretion to determine what the child is going to receive, the creditor protection becomes a lot stronger. And in those cases, we think it's going to help a lot of those clients who might have entrepreneurial children benefit them without providing too much control, you know, control and locking the children's hands up too tightly, but also give the children the ability to add some additional creditor protection if bad business debts end up resulting from a failed effort. Tell our listeners, because I probably use the word uh, without defining it. Tell our listeners what creditor protection means. Creditor protection means that if I owe somebody money, and whether it's a credit card or a mortgage or a car loan, or I've borrowed money to start a business, that they are they are my creditor. I owe them money. If I own assets in my own name, those are generally subject to attack by my creditors. So anybody to whom I owe money for the most part can come after my assets subject to certain exceptions for things like my IRA or cash value and a life insurance policy on my life. If I am putting my assets into trust for my daughter, I can say this has a spendthrift clause attached to this trust. Under state law, that allows me to protect it, not specifically from my own creditors, 
but they don't, they don't have to get through the probate process someday. And that may be used, my assets may be used to pay my creditors, but I can protect them from her creditors. So if she if she has a credit card debt or she has a bad a bad business experience and ends up with debt as a result of that, the creditors that she has cannot come after the assets in the trust to, to nearly the same extent that they could if the, she owned those assets outright. Where I think we're getting near the end of our time here, I just wanted to ask you a, a couple of final questions. One is, how often would you recommend that your clients update their estate plans? We tell people at least every three years to review what they've done. It's not necessarily to say they need to make changes, but at least to consider whether changes would be desirable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if there's major events, a birth, a death, a marriage, um, an incapacity or a death of someone you've chosen as a fiduciary, you're retiring, you're starting a new business, you're selling a business, anything major that's going on in your life, that's also a good time to go ahead, pull out what you've done, take a look, see if you need to make some changes. And then we tell people, if you have any questions at all about whether this particular event means that you need to do something, just give us a call. And remember, when you're reviewing it, who the fiduciary is, who is the executor, who is the trustee, Look at those carefully, particularly mm-hmm. as we age. I see so many wills and trusts naming the spouse where at some point the spouse isn't the right person as you age. So the changes in the fiduciary's life might make a difference as well. Yes, yes. which is why I said death or incapacity of a fiduciary. Those, that's actually one of the more common reasons that a lot of our clients end up making changes is they come they come back and they say, well, I just had this the other day, like client came in and said, well, I've named my sister in these roles and she's no longer really at a point where she's able to do it. I need to change it. And what about you, Melissa? What do you recommend for your clients? I would uh, concur with Lorraine that that's exactly what we would, uh, that's what we would say. Uh, Every couple of years, if there's been a big event and if not, just get it out because people, people don't think they're going to forget what they've put in their documents, but they actually do. And they'll pull out their documents and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe we named that person. And uh, it it just means that, you know, it's time time to rethink those decisions. Uh, and I would say, you know, as a practical matter, do people really do that? I would say no. Most of my clients, they do the wills when they when their kids are babies and they've named the guardian. And the next thing they know, they're in there and the kids are having grandchildren. And that's when they're really updating. So it's as a practical matter, most of my clients are doing it. you know, not as frequently as they probably should. And and I will mention this is a problem. I see Mm -hmm. 30 and 40 and 50 year old wills that don't work where everything has changed because they didn't go back. And that arises and creates problems, sometimes disputes within the family, and they end up coming to us. So we've talked about, you know, what we can do drafting wills and trusts so that you can do your planning and avoid disputes and control your assets. Our listeners may have a few more questions. If our listeners wanted to get in touch with you after the show, Melissa, how can they get in touch with you? Well, we have a website, which is www.salowalker.com. And it's got our contact information uh, we just took the great leap into the 20th century a couple of years ago and have a website. So it's not... Uh, it's not actually as, the 21st that's century. What, that's my joke. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we... Um, uh, so it's not as robust as some other websites, but it's got our phone number and our email on it. And that's a good way to get in touch with us. And Lorraine, how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to ask you some additional questions? I would also tend to direct people first to our website, which is www.morgandesalvo.com, M-O-R-G-A-N. D-I-S-A-L-V-O dot com. 
we have spent over well going on 11 years now trying to build a website that provides a comprehensive library of resources where people can go and research these sorts of issues. They can learn about this. We actually have a, an article that we, we published on wills versus revocable trusts. Which one is right for you? We did a newsletter last month on how to fund your revocable trust. Oh, is that why you're on the show today? Uh, maybe. Um, <laughs> and the other thing, we're getting ready to publish a new newsletter actually talking about exactly what we talked about earlier as far as making sure your beneficiary designations and your asset ownership is correct and understanding it trying to explain to people it's not just your will these beneficiary designations and these asset ownership forms can affect what happens and you need to pay attention to it because that's a very we, we find that people don't understand that they really think i need a will that's going to control everything and that's not true as we wrap up our show today i want to thank everybody for listening to wealth matters where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth for more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com and remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were attorney Melissa Walker, a partner with Salo and Walker, and attorney Lorraine DeSalvo, a partner with Morgan and DeSalvo. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.